0: Amen. You may be seated this morning. Again, we want to welcome you to Calvary Chapel. It's good to see all of you this morning. And on Sunday mornings, we're doing a verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. So we're going to continue that. We're going to be in John chapter 12, the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth Gospel recorded for us in the Scriptures. And so chapter 12 will cover verses 1 through 16. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, just raise your hand and Pastor John We'll slip you a Bible, so you can read with this and follow along with this. So, again, we're going to be covering chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 16. While you're turning there, I was uh, talking about the Calvary Chapel magazine. I don't know if I mentioned, these magazines are in the bookstore, all right, just uh, where Travis is heading out, right behind that door there. And you can head over there and uh, take a, grab one of those magazines. And, again, I would encourage you to take time and read it and look at it and uh, you'll be blessed by uh, the uh, ministry that God is doing through the Calvary Chapels. Also, while you're in the bookstore, it is November, and I know that it's a little early, but not too early to mention that some of you are going to be thinking about Christmas and sh- shopping and all of that. You can do all your shopping right there in the bookstore, all right? So, um, but actually, there's very good Bibles that are there. We sell our Bibles at cost. We don't make any money on our Bibles and uh, so at cost are the Word for Today Bibles and, and a few others that are there. And some good, you know, uh, encouraging books for you to be able to give to um, your believing friends and family and non-believing friends and family as well. So this is a time of the year when people are really thinking about those things, about, um, you know, Jesus. And even though the world tries to and our society more and more tries to push Christ out of Christmas, people are still thinking about it. and they know. Uh, deep down inside what Christmas is really all about, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. So we wanted to remind them of that and uh, give them truth. And so take a look at the bookstore over the next several weeks as you're thinking about those things and how you can bless somebody uh, and edify them in the truth and the gospel message. And uh, I know that you'll find a lot of good materials that are there. Also, just want to um, uh, just... Thank you for your prayers, as Ashley is with us, and Barbara, they're back from China. They got in yesterday, so thank you for your prayers for them for being out in the mission field, so it's good to see you guys, and uh, well, I think Barbara's sleeping, so she came over last night, and I asked, how was the trip, and she fell asleep, so um, <laughs> very tired, very long, exhausting trip, uh, but they're safe. I just want to say thank you for your uh, prayers for them, we look forward to hearing all about uh, what uh, they did and how God used them over in China over the last couple of weeks. So um, just wanted to let you know that. So you ready for a Bible study? All right, you're there. John chapter 12. Why don't we read the first three verses here as we read in John chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, who he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then verse 3, Mary would take a pound of very costly oil spikenard, anoint the feet of Jesus, and wipe his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil." And so, Lord, as we gather here this morning, and I'm thankful for all those who are here. And whether we're in the sanctuary or out in the coffee shop uh, listening and, and seeing the service out there, my prayer is that our heart would be attentive right now. Because, Lord, we're seeing the last few days, the last few hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as we continue in this gospel, there's so much for us to just really look at and to uh, be edified and encouraged and blessed by and just seeing how Jesus did indeed prove his love for us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, I pray that this morning would be just that, just looking at Jesus and seeing him and his wonderful uh, love for us and faithfulness to us. And I pray that uh, we would be... uh, ones that are attentive, not only with their ears being opened up uh, and listening, but our hearts as well. So we give you this time to the study of the Word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we begin to enter into chapter 12 here, we know that Jesus is making his way into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And of course, chapter 12, as I've mentioned to you, to the end of John's gospel, is going to be focusing on the last week of Jesus' ministry, as he will come to Jerusalem, and he's coming for the Passover. He's going to come into Jerusalem, where he's going to be the Passover Lamb of God for us. And at the end of the week, we will see that he's going to go to Calvary's cross, He's going to uh, be hung on that cross, shedding his blood for the sins of humanity. He's going to be buried, put into the tomb of, uh, that belonged to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And then three days later, he's going to rise again. And once again, he's going to, to as we read these uh, chapters here, we're going to be reminded that he proved who he claimed to be, and that is truly the resurrection and the life. We saw in the previous chapter that the high priest Caiaphas, the other religious leaders of Jerusalem, have already you know, met and had this emergency meeting and, and determined that Jesus must be put to death. This is their priority right now. This is uh, what is occupying their mind, that we must put him to death, and we're not going to rest until he is uh, handed over to the Romans and put to death. And they were afraid because Jesus is beginning to kind of get this large following near Jerusalem. Of course, the uh, multitudes were great up in the Galilee region, but here in Jerusalem, People are noticing uh, Jesus, particularly with the signs that he has been doing. And they are, first of all, afraid that they're going to lose their authority and status with the people, but also they're afraid that as Jesus gets this large following, that Rome is going to see it as a threat, as a rebellion, and they're going to pounce on the nation. So they also have that fear as well. So it is Caiaphas that said that this one man is expedient that he should die for the nation. And so they are plotting and planning to have Jesus be put to death. But they don't understand that Jesus will die for the nation. He's going to die for mankind as he will go to the cross and he will shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin and it's all part of God's redemptive plan and Jesus willingly is giving up his life for us the leaders here are not in control and that's the thing to remember it's kinda like as we do enter into the Christmas season as you know, that familiar story of Luke chapter 2 concerning the birth of Jesus uh, on that night that he was born in Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 2, you know the familiar words that we've read many times, at, particularly at Christmas time, that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should, should be taxed. And we know that Caesar Augustus, the, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, makes this decree that you have have to go back to your ancestry to register for these new taxes. And when he spoke, everybody was in transition. Everybody had to go. But Caesar Augustus was not in control. You see, God was in control. And Caesar Augustus was really just a pawn in the hand of of God because God wanted to get Joseph and his espoused wife to Bethlehem. From Nazareth to Bethlehem, where God said that his son was going to be born. There in Bethlehem, the the house of bread is what Bethlehem means. And that's where the bread of life would be born. So God is in control here. And of course, we've seen that Jesus has already said that no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life on my own and I raise it up again. And before Jesus would make his triumphal entry now into Jerusalem in this last week of Jesus' life, we read that first he stops at Bethany, you know, in the previous chapter that that village was also known as the city of Mary, only a couple miles from Jerusalem, right there on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper at this time, we know that, from Mark's narrative in chapter 14, verse 3 of his gospel. And there is Simon. He's hosting uh, Jesus and the disciples and this family that consists of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And as we discussed last week, as we opened up chapter 12, there is Martha. She's serving. She's working. She's cooking dinner for the guests that are there. She's doing it with joy. She's doing it without complaining, as we've seen her previously in the gospel but this time she does it with gladness of heart because she has seen the Lord's faithfulness and his goodness and his power working in her life. And then as we discussed that, we also looked at Lazarus. Lazarus is there sitting at the table with Jesus. Lazarus is a witness and and he is alive. Lazarus who'd been raised from the dead. And you see Lazarus, as he was there, we're gonna read in verse nine that the people came not only to see Jesus in that house, but the people were coming to look at Lazarus. Look at Lazarus. He's there sitting at the table with Jesus. He's alive. He's talking. He's laughing. He's eating. He truly is alive. And he's proof that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So he was a witness of just being there, of the reality of Jesus Christ. And then we see that Mary, she is worshiping, as we just read. And last week, we began to look and discuss about these three components that were taking place in this home and how they are three components that are taking place in this home, that is this church home, and should be taking place in your home personally as well. That we have opportunity to serve the Lord. And I just want to encourage you this morning that you belong to the kingdom of God. You have opportunity to serve the true and the living God. It is such a joy and a blessing to be able to do that. And whatever opportunities that He's given to you, how He's gifted you, uh, the the doors that He's opened for you, the things that He's put on your heart, so many different ministries and diversity of gifts and, and opportunities. If it's praying for people and just encouraging them, doing very practical things, as we know that there is Martha there just serving in that little house, blessing people. And you have opportunity to do the same thing. We're to be a witness. And you see, Lazarus is there, and even though it's not recorded, a word that he says, he's a witness by just being there, the reality of Jesus, as I mentioned to you. And you and I, as we live in that newness of life, born again by the Spirit of God, that we are a witness of the reality of Jesus Christ, that they are to look at you and me and see that we're not like the world. We don't live after the world. And that Jesus is real in our hearts. And then we get to witness, of course, with the words that we give to them. The truth of God's word and the gospel message. And now, thirdly, we see Mary the worshiper As we read in verse 3, she took a pound of very costly oil, Spikenard, which uh, many believe would come probably from that area of India. And also we're going to be told that this fragrance oil is going to be worth about a year's salary. And she's going to be looked down upon for doing this act of worship. She's going to be rebuked by Judas as we continue reading. As you and I are ones, that as we worship the Lord... And as we make it a part of our Christian lives, and it should be very much a part of our Christian lives, it very well may be that it's going to be costly. And what I mean by that is people will begin to look down at you. They'll begin to look at you as being a little strange, a little bit weird or fanatical. They'll begin to criticize you. We can live in a society, and we do, that we live in a self-consuming society. We think that everything is for us, and I think that a lot of us can do this if we're not, not you know, aware of what really worship is about, but what we can do is, oh, the worship, it was okay, or I didn't like that song, or I didn't like the fact that they had drums, or I wish they would have had drums, things like that, just comments like that. I didn't really care for, you know, the worship today or the other side of the spectrum. It was fabulous today and it really moved me and, and um, we think that somehow worship is just for, for me, primarily. But the thing that we need to remember is worship foremost is about Him and it's about blessing Him and the attitude of our hearts. The Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice is something that costs me something, giving our hearts and our voices to Him. It costs me something, but we find that uh, as we do really give to Him, that we're going to get something back. And we're going to be blessed, and we're going to be moved, and we're going to be touched deeply by the Lord. And please remember, as we come into this place... If we as a congregation truly worship with our hearts, not just with our voices, as we know that, Lord, you are worthy of our worship, and, and Lord, that you deserve our attention and our hearts, and, and to do it with thanksgiving and gratitude and a sense of awe, then it's been a good worship service. So here is Mary, this worshiper. She was like that. The one that is a beautiful picture, of one who's devoted, one who we see would be at the feet of Jesus and this fragrance oil that was very costly, expensive. She did not hesitate to break that seal alabaster box and pour it upon Jesus anointing him. His feet, wiping them with their hair. And I think that uh, as we look at this act of worship that it shows us a couple things that will take place in our lives as we become more like Mary, as we become devoted to the Lord, worshipers of the Lord, as we position ourselves at the feet of the Lord. First of all, we see here that this oil is spikenard. It would be for Jesus. But John notes that she would wipe the oil with her hair and the whole house would be filled with the fragrance of that oil. Mary would then take on the fragrance that was on Jesus, wouldn't she? And we're told that the whole house would be filled with the fragrance that would be on Jesus. And as you and me as believers, as we are ones that are like Mary, a worshiper of the Lord, the one who sits at the feet of the Lord, you know what you're going to find? You're going to take on the same fragrance as Jesus does. And as you go to your workplace and as you go to your home, And as you come into this place, that it's going to fill wherever it is, uh, you know, that place, your home, the workplace here with the fragrance of Jesus. It was Paul when he was writing a second letter to the Corinthian believers. He would write in chapter 2 that, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. So Paul is saying something very, very important that as we just know Him and are growing in our love and knowledge of Jesus Christ and devoted to Him and as we worship Him, you're going to take on the fragrance of Christ and others are going to be able to see and know and to to sense that fragrance that you are going to be giving to others as you're devoted to the Lord. That as you just are... Worshiping the Lord. You're going to take on the fragrance of Jesus. Now, if you hang out with the world and your priority is the world, then you're going to give the fragrance of the world. You're going to smell like the world. So we learn from Mary here, this one who's a worshiper and and devoted to the Lord and loved the Lord deeply. And then, secondly, Mary with this costly fragrance, uh, fragrant oil sealed in an alabaster box, would only be open for special and unique occasions sometimes it would be used to anoint the body of a loved one who had died there was another mary that we know that was very devoted to the lord and that's mary magdalene not this mary here at bethany but mary magdalene who on that first easter morning came to anoint the body of jesus with perfume and burial spices there is another mary that was there at the foot of the cross and that is the mother of jesus and we see her as she would watch her son dying for sinful humanity, dying for her own sins, Mary, a very special woman, blessed among all women. And it would be, as we're going to see in this gospel, that Jesus is going to commission John to, to care for his mother, Mary. And I considered this Mary here at Bethany. I think that she understood something that perhaps maybe that the others didn't fully understand. You see, Jesus had directly spoken to his disciples that he was going to be handed over to the chief priests and the pharisees i'm going to be beaten i'm going to suffer i'm going to die and then i'm going to rise again after three days you see he never talked about his crucifixion without also talking about his resurrection so jesus told them directly but they didn't fully get it until after the fact we will see that as we continue through this gospel But this Mary here, I think that she did. This Mary of Bethany. Now it's not recorded what exactly Jesus talked to her about, but I think that she understood what was going to happen. She did not use this ointment for his burial because he's not going to stay buried. There's no need for me to go to the cross with the other Marys that were there because this is not the end of the story. I think that she understood that he was going to rise from the grave. He is the one that has proved to me that he is the resurrection and the life and he's going to rise from the grave and we are going to live because of that. And how she would know this or have this insight Well, I think it's because she placed herself at the feet of Jesus and just worshiping him with all of her heart, completely devoted to her. And because she did that, I believe she knew his heart and understood his words in a way that others didn't. Folks, yes, worship is costly. And people might think that you're a little bit weird or criticize you or misunderstand you. And there will be the Judas that will be next to you that perhaps in your life and and whether a family member or, or those at work or whoever it might be that as we're going to see Judas here the betrayer in a moment is going to tell this Mary who's anointing Jesus that why did you waste this ointment? You need to be more helpful. You need to be more practical. But how you and I need to give totally our hearts and our lives to Him in worship, to be consistently, regularly at the feet of Jesus with our hearts given to Him in worship and awe and amazement of who He is. And as we do our morning devotions, as you get up to start the day, and in the night watches at the end of the day, and in this place corporately, that as we do that, I think that we're going to understand more of the heart and the words of the Lord. So Mary does this act of worship, but verse 4, as I mentioned to you, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So here's Mary worshiping Jesus. Now contrast that with Judas, who in a few days is going to betray Jesus. At this time of John chapter 12, he's upset. He rebukes Mary for this act of worship, and he sounds spiritual at first, very practical at first. Hey, that oil was worth 300 denarii. Now, denarii is a day's wage. So you take 52 Sabbaths in a year, you know, you have 300 denarii, that's worth a year's wages, as I mentioned to you. Now, I don't know what the medium income is for this area in Weld County and Greeley, 40 50, $60,000, i am not sure, but it's a lot of money. So here he tries to pass himself off as being very spiritual. Hey, we can help out a lot of people, but think about what he is saying. What he is saying is, is that you wasted this on Jesus, and he isn't worth it. He has a sense of worldly financial value, but absolutely no godly or eternal value. Now the other gospels tell us of this account that it wasn't just Judas that criticized her, but the other disciples joined in with him as well and began to criticize her. Now Judas, we know, is the treasurer, as the text tells us. He's holding the, the money bag, And the one who's the treasurer is the one who's the most trusted in the group, isn't he? They're not going to give the, the money back to the one they don't trust. So keep in mind that as we go through the rest of John and we see he portrays Jesus here as he's trying to sound spiritual and being practical, Judas being the treasure, he's the one that's trustworthy. He's not the one, you know, there in the back all the time and, you know, kind of wringing his hands and has this cynical look on his face and shifty eyes and, and all of this and everybody's going, oh, we're not so sure about that Judas over there. When Jesus in the upper room that we're going to see here shortly in a few chapters, when he says, one of you is going to betray me, they're not going, aha, it's that Judas over there. I knew it has to be him. Look at him. We haven't trusted him the whole time. No, they have no clue, the other disciples. They're going, really? One of us is going to betray you? Hmm, Is it I? Is it me? So Judas was a leader in this group. So when he is saying, why did you waste that oil? It could have been sold and given to the poor. The others jump in and say, He's right. He's trustworthy. We need to listen to him. They agreed with him. That's too much devotion and love to Jesus. But Judas didn't care about the poor, he was stealing from the money bag. In verse 7, Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Jesus here immediately defends Mary's act of love and devotion, and he will with you as as well. He says, you will always have the poor among you, but not me. She has done this for my burial. Now, in Jesus' response, he's not saying that we shouldn't care about the poor or we shouldn't help out the poor. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is you will always have the opportunity to help the poor. There will always be the poor, but this opportunity for her at this moment, for her to show her love and devotion to me is limited because in a few hours I'm going to walk around this hill to Jerusalem and I'm going to die in a few days and you're not always going to have me here. And again, she understood this because she was one that was devoted to Jesus and one who sat at the feet of Jesus. So here Jesus is saying, you guys need to leave her alone. You need to back off. And this devotion that she has shown to me was always in great acceptance and blessing to Jesus and a priority to him." So in verse 9, now a great many of the Jews knew that uh, he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only but that they might also see Lazarus. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So the Jewish leaders said, not only do we have to put Jesus to death, but Lazarus as well, because uh, he is a testimony and a witness to the claims of Jesus, the reality of Jesus. It truly is the resurrection and the life. So again, the religious leaders, they, they, um, some of them, part of the Sanhedrin council, that sect called the Sadducees, they did not even believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in coming to Messiah. But here they, they are worried. Here they're afraid. Here they are, are angry that we're, Jesus is going to gain popularity. And we need to kill him. And, and anybody else, like Lazarus, that has this testimony that he is the resurrection and the life. Today, many Christians throughout the world are put to death for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now in the scriptures, we know that Stephen was the first recorded martyr for Christ in the book of Acts. Lazarus, it's interesting, is the first one that they wanted to kill. Now we don't know if they actually did that or not. But we do know that millions and millions of believers have been, over the last 2,000 years, been put to death for their devotion and belief and worship and testimony that Jesus is the resurrection and the life And it will continue until his return. Matter of fact, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that the Bible tells us very clearly that many who believe in Jesus are going to be martyred for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we're seeing an increase of persecution against Christians worldwide even today. And we need to remember our brothers and sisters are losing their lives putting their lives on the line in the middle east in syria and in iraq uh, parts of asia africa sudan other parts of africa and south america we need to remember our brothers and sisters that are being martyred for jesus christ so here they want to kill lazarus we got to get rid of him as well and then, of course, the persecution would come after the death and burial and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ against the Christians and has continued ever since then. So, Jesus is going to leave this little house in Bethany and now go to Jerusalem, as we read in verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast. So, Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, he's going to make his entry into the city. This day right now is Sunday, it's the Sunday before his resurrection. He's going to travel. He's going to travel a short distance to Bethpage. And from Bethpage, he's going to have the disciples bring him a, a donkey with a, a colt that was tied up, and he's going to ride it down the Mount of Olives and he's going to pass by the Garden of Gethsemane through the Kidron Valley. And then he's going to probably enter into through the southern steps to the temple proper, to the temple area where all the people are coming in for the Feast of Passover. Uh, tens of thousands of people are pouring into the city at this time. Now, it is Passover. Remember that in Exodus chapter 12, God first instituted the Passover. Passover. And you recall that on the first month of the year, the month of Nisan, on the 14th day of the month, that was the day that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. But it was on the 10th day of Nisan that each family was to select a lamb without spot or blemish. You were to select that lamb on the 10th day to be sacrificed on the 14th day, which was Passover. And in those four days between the 10th and the 14th of the month, it would be that lamb inspected very closely, watched to make sure that there was no flaw, no blemish found in it. So you can picture the scene here. Tens and tens of thousands of people from all over Israel, all over the known world, are pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover. There's tens of thousands of sheep that are being brought into the city through the sheep gate, uh, brought in to be inspected by the priests, to, to be bought by the people, uh, to be used for sacrifice. And so the priests are inspecting, the sheep are coming in, and, and they are going to be inspected for the next four days to make sure that there's no spot or blemish the great multitudes making its way into the holy city of Jerusalem and all of a sudden here comes Jesus whom John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on that very same day that the lambs were selected and inspected for that Passover was the same day that Jesus comes riding into the city in what we know as his triumphal entry. And in the next days until Passover, the priests, the religious leaders, the political leaders are going to inspect the Lamb of God. We particularly see that in the synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They try to find blame. They try to trap Jesus. They try to back Him into a corner. They hurl questions at Him. They try to find fault with Him, but they couldn't find any fault with Him. He would pass their inspection, he would pass the religious leaders' inspections. They tried everything to accuse him. They tried everything to back him into a corner and find fault with him. But they couldn't. They couldn't come up with a real accusation against him. And Pilate knew that. Pilate knew that they are envious. We know that the political leaders, that they couldn't find any fault with him. And it's Pilate saying to the crowd, Why? What has he done? I find no fault in this man. And even Judas the betrayer would say, I've betrayed innocent blood. But the crowds would cry out, Crucify him. So the people come into the feast. And when they heard again, verse 12 that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So this large, enthusiastic crowd greets Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They're crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the King of Israel. Hosanna, Hosanna. Here he comes. As they're quoting that messianic psalm, Psalm 118, verse 26. Now why were they waving the palm branches? Now you remember if you were here a couple weeks ago that in, in the Feast of Lights in chapter 10 of John that, that Jesus was there in Jerusalem a couple months before this time here of Passover that we talked about what that Feast of Lights was all about. It's also known as Hanukkah today and how the uh, you know, Jews, uh, the Judas Maccabee called the Hammer and his brothers and others would run out of Jerusalem 200 years before this this Syrian king that had come into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and killed many Jews. He was called Antiochus Epiphanes. And as he would eventually, after nine years of war, be driven out of the holy city of Jerusalem, out of the temple, we see that they rededicated the temple and relit the menorah. And that's what Hanukkah is all about. And we talked about that in detail. But at that time as well, what they did when they drove out Antiochus and the Syrian army, they cut down palm branches waving them. It was a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It was a symbol of being freed from political oppression, from military oppression and I point this out because it's important for us to realize that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem as they are crying out this messianic song Hosanna, save now, Hosanna, save now you're the king of Israel that they thought that those who were looking to jesus many of them here that they were looking to jesus to be a political and national savior they thought that this is it this messiah here if he's the messiah he's going to free us from rome he's going to free us from the military soldiers here in jerusalem and he's going to usher in the kingdom And we know from Luke's gospel that at this time that he's coming into Jerusalem and the people are crying out this messianic psalm, that the religious leaders would protest. They would say, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus responded to them by saying, if they should keep silent, the very rocks will immediately cry out. It was the day that Jesus publicly received the calls of the people that he was Messiah. Why on this day? Because it would be a fulfillment of that great prophecy of Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. In the Old Testament, over 500 years before this event, that Daniel is off in captivity in Babylon. And the 70 years of captivity are just about over. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's praying about the end of the captivity. And as he's praying, the angel Gabriel shows up. Gabriel, who is associated with messages concerning the coming of Messiah. And Gabriel says to Daniel, Daniel, I've come to give you knowledge and understanding not about 70 years but about 70 weeks, 70 periods of seven years, and they are determined for your people, that is the Jews, and for your holy city. And know this, again, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and understand that the going forth of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince is going to be seven weeks or 62 weeks Or that is, as you added up, 69 periods of seven years, or 493 years. And you remember in our study of Nehemiah this summer on Wednesday night, that in Nehemiah chapter 2, that's when the command came out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, Nehemiah the cupbearer says to the king, I want to go back and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and the streets. And he gave the command. Now, if you do the calculations, it's interesting, just as the British Royal Observatory did, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, in the month of Nissan, the first day, they come to March 14, 445 B.C., so when the command comes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming to Messiah the Prince, is going to be 483 years. You can count it. Or 173,880 days. And as you do that from March 14, 445 B.C., and you count 173,880 days, do you know what you come up with? You come to April 6, 32 A.D. That was a Sunday. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem receiving the praises and the shouts of the people, the only time that he would receive that in a public setting. You remember that in John chapter 6 up in the Galilee region, they wanted to crown him as king. And Jesus dismissed the crowds because it wasn't his hour, it wasn't his time. Now Jesus rides into Jerusalem 173,880 days after the prophecy declares... That when the command comes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, that Messiah is going to come. And Jesus says, If these should keep quiet, the very rocks will cry out because the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, must be fulfilled. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. And Jesus comes riding on a donkey, which was also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9. Now, why a donkey? Think about it. A king, a conquering king, would never ride in on a colt, on a donkey. Matthew chapter 21 tells us that Jesus told his disciples, when you get to Bethpage there on the Mount of Olives, you're going to find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So picture this. Here is Jesus riding lowly on a colt with a donkey leading her. Now does this register in your mind of a threatening king? of a conquering king? Absolutely not. I imagine the Roman soldiers are laughing. They're saying, well, this is your king? Look at him, he's on a little colt. Look at him, he's not wearing a crown, he doesn't have a sword. And I think that's one of the reasons why that those soldiers there in the sufferings of Jesus put that robe on him and mocked him. And they're laughing, they're thinking this is a joke. A conquering king would come in on a stallion. Wearing a crown with a sword. So riding on this colt was actually a symbol of humility and peace because this time he came as the prince of peace. Gabriel would come to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. I believe it was Gabriel. As that angel said to him, Don't be afraid to take for you this day Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bring forth a son, and he shall save his people, not from Rome. He shall save his people from their sins. You and I, most of us know that there's a greater bondage than Rome or the world or anything can put on us, and that is the bondage of sin. And that's why Jesus came into Jerusalem. To provide forgiveness of sins because he's going to the cross. For us to have right relationship with the Father. To have a promise of eternity. So that he can rule in our hearts and sit upon the throne of our hearts. But at this time, the people didn't understand that. The only crown that he would wear was not a conquering crown, but a crown of thorns. He wouldn't carry a sword, he would carry a cross. So as the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem. And Luke tells us that as he drew near the city, he wept over it saying, if ye had known even you especially in this your day. This is your day. The things that make for your peace. I am your peace and you don't recognize it. You don't understand what I came to do. You haven't accepted me because in a few days they will cry out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And he continued to weep over Jerusalem. But as he would say that now these things are hidden from you for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you one stone upon another, because you did not know, listen, the day of your visitation, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. That would happen in 70 AD as the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. Quickly, in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. The disciples, even though they were close to Jesus, they are seeing these events, uh, part of these events. They've heard him teach about his crucifixion and, and resurrection. They were clueless. We're going to see that when we go into chapter 17 through, or 13 through 17, the, the upper room discourse, it's graduation night. It's the last night that they're going to be with Jesus. And they're clueless. Jesus is going to say, you know, I'm going to go away. Where are you going? And one of you is going to betray me. Who is it? You know, you know the way. What is the way? They're absolutely clueless until Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. Then they realize these things to him when Jesus was glorified. Listen, are the scriptures a little bit confusing to you? You keep learning the scriptures. You keep growing in the word of God, but you be a worshiper of the Lord and you're going to understand a fuller, uh, in a fuller way the things and the words and the heart of the Lord and you let the Lord be glorified in your life. And you're going to see that great understanding is going to come to you. You know, Jesus is going to come back, not on a donkey this time. Not as a suffering Savior, but He is going to come back to establish His kingdom as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, because that's who He is. And He's going to come back wearing a crown to rule and reign. And you and I are living in exciting days where I believe that we are in the last days. And I want to encourage you to have greater understanding and have greater devotion. And understanding the things of the Lord, you glorify Him in your life. And you be one that you continue in the scriptures, knowing Him, and be a worshiper of the Lord. That's why we come to the communion table. As in just a minute, we're going to hand out the communion elements. And it's to remember what Jesus has done for us. And going to the cross may be a time of just awe and just wonder of this new covenant that we belong As Jesus died for our sins. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this incredible gospel that is written to us. And, Lord, I thank you for the time that we've had this morning and the time that we're going to have, taking a few minutes now to come to the communion table. As you said, do this in remembrance of me. But, Father, I also right now just want to pray if there is anyone here in this sanctuary out in the coffee shop that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The communion table is for the believer who comes and holds the elements in their hands, remembering what Jesus did for them. And so for you who perhaps are here, that you don't have that relationship with Jesus. Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship with the true and the living God that comes through Jesus, who went to the cross to die for your sins, He loves you. And the Bible declares that our sins have made us spiritually dead, has separated us from God, and every single one of us have sinned. But Jesus came to die for your sins. He became a sacrifice for you. He allowed his body to be broken for the forgiveness of sin. His blood shed. As he went through the sufferings and he hung on that cross, and he cried out, it is finished. I I provided the work. I've done it. I've made atonement for forgiveness of sin and he was put into a grave and he rose again after three days and he's alive. We believe in a risen Savior. He proved, he validated what he did on Calvary's cross. That he, truly he is the Lord because he conquered sin and death and he did it for you. Do you know that? And he desires for you to come into a personal relationship with him and by faith be saved as you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the grave and to make you a new creation, to change your heart. If you've never done that, if your life was to end today or tomorrow and you don't know what would happen to you if you were to die, then get right with the Lord today. Right now, he loves you and he's real and open up your heart and let him sit upon the throne of your heart. And you pray, Jesus, come, oh Lord, and sit on the throne of my heart today because I believe that you are the Son of God who died for me, a sinner. And I believe that you shed your blood for me and that you were put into a grave and you rose again and that you are truly the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. And I ask with all of my heart right now that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. I want to follow you. I want you to be the, truly the Lord of my life that sits upon the throne of my, my heart. And thank you for loving me. And I know that life only comes through you, through your atoning work. Help me to live for you, Jesus. And if you prayed that prayer, we welcome you to the communion table To just be in awe with the rest of us of what Jesus has done for you. Then after this service, I want you to come and pray with Pastor John and tell him the decision that you made so we can pray for you and and just give you something to, to help you. But Lord, right now as the communion elements go out, I pray that you would just right now just minister to our hearts as we just ponder the incredible salvation that we have in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The ushers, I'll hand out the communion element.